0: Hey everybody welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I'm your host Chris Cosentino. We are here to talk about people that inspire and all my guests are inspiring in so many different ways and I'm really looking forward to digging deep into how they got to where they are to the top of their game. How hard they've worked, how much they've given up and how they're giving back. So without further ado here's our next guest. Hey everybody welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino and today I am here with the Spice Master. I know that sounds kind of a crazy thing. That's Lior Lev Sirkars. Welcome.
1: Hey, great to be here.
0: So, you know, I stumbled into your shop one day in New York <laughs> before I even knew, right? I'd heard, I've heard all the, I heard all these rumors and these, you know, mumblings. And I was in Chicago and Paul Kahn told me, You have to find New York. You have to go to New York. (laughs) York. So I was in New York. I can't remember what what I was there for. And I was walking down the street and I literally stumbled on the shop by absolute chance. And I walked in and I was gobsmacked. I mean, the aroma, the excitement of seeing spices. I I couldn't get my hands on at that point. Right now, <laughs> I now I can I can just call you, um, yeah. but it was all those things that I I had been wanting that I may have smuggled back from Spain or taken back from France when I had never seen them before, and it's like they weren't illegal. I just I would pack my my luggage with them, and now you were bringing them all here, and the quality <laughs> was far beyond what anybody had seen. So, I'm I'm really excited to hear the story, like the trajectory, like. I have your Spice Companion cookbook, I've read it, but I think the world needs to understand, like how did you go from being a chef to deciding I'm just gonna hunt down where all the spices come from?
1: Well, yeah, thanks. That was that was definitely a fun day kind of having you walking into La Boite. I don't remember how many years ago and I semi-jokingly said that all, you know, always lead to Paul Cahan somehow or to Chicago. <laughs> they uh, usually do, right? You get stuck in Paul is a very good bullshit detector. And I I think that if you ask him, he will point you the right direction of whatever it is that you need. People, food, travel. He He's kind of my 1-800, hey, you know, where, what do I do? And so...
0: And and if he doesn't, and if if he calls you bullshit, you're definitely sending you the wrong direction. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was great, and and uh, he's been a, a really dear dear friend personally and friend of of La Boite for many years. Um, it, it's you know it was really there was no roadmap, pun intended, to to get to the spice trade. Nobody in my family is. Remotely connected to the food business or industry, aside from the fact that they just enjoy food and going out, um, it's it's a journey starting you know in the '70s in Israel in a kibbutz, which is this communal village where it is a weird mix between really bad food in the communal dining hall, where you know you had breakfast, lunch, and dinner served for like 400 people, a lot of angry people in the kitchen that were serving angry food. It was not tasty, it was overcooked, overboiled. So I think I started escaping um, around to the to whatever was around me in the Galilee, which has a river where you can go fishing for trout. There's wild berries, fig trees, apples, avocados, lemons. Druze communities, Muslims, Christians were like, oh, maybe, maybe I should be going to this dining room. There's just so much to eat outside. Before foraging was foraging, we were just as kids running and picking up whatever was in season, going fishing after school, cooking some trout over wood fire. I think that's kind of what led me to really become passionate about ingredients and about food and culture. And Israel being this phenomenal complex of, I don't know, 70, 80 ethnicities, just kind of like going to Queens for a couple of hours, but just like... um, a whole country where in one apartment building, you have a Moroccan living next to a Tunisian, next to somebody from Poland. Across the street, there's a Druze or a Muslim. And I was like, insane, so good. And I I became fascinated with this notion. I had the chance of living in Europe for quite some time. My my dad worked uh, for the government. So we were sent to Rome for a year and then to Europe for three, four years, and that's where I encountered non-kosher food, because Israel, a lot of the food, there's, there was no pork back in the day, there was no shellfish, and all of a sudden, you know, you have dairy and meat together, you have bacon and ham and mussels, and I was like, wait, this is incredible, why did nobody tell me about it? <laughs> that's amazing (laughs) and that was mind-blowing all of a sudden and you know some even some uh meat that nowadays is banned in europe like horse which was back in the 70s early 80s was still available i'm not a fan necessarily but that was just like things that i've experienced Um, and so i came back to israel finished school but it was always cooking. My mom at some point, you know, worked late hours. So there was this phone call saying, Hey, could you just make lunch and dinner for you and your sisters? And, um, ironically, one of the first cookbooks that somebody gave me was Danielle Boulou's cookbook and we'll get to it in the middle in a minute, because that's kind of how I ended up in New York many years later and just started cooking Then military service where you know, I had—I was a sergeant. I had to feed eighty people, make sure that they're fed, and my cooks were uh, not in the kitchen quite often. So somebody had to step in and make whatever in the middle of hostile territories. So make food, which led later on this notion of feeding people for the sense of just hungry. You know, when somebody's hungry, uh, and how can you deliver happiness with the most simple thing out of a can? Um, so that was kind of another layer of, of what it is to be a cook or a chef, which are just two different things, a uh, little bit. And once done with service, with, with the uh, three year uh, service that I had to do, I just needed some time off and traveled to South America. And uh, while people were hiking and going to see sightseeing, I just went to the market and with zero Spanish started chit chatting with vendors and eating different ingredients that i've never had and uh, decided that maybe this is what i should be doing so i went back to israel a year after traveling in south america and showed up in a couple of kitchens like hey i want to cook and it was like okay uh do you have any experience like no most interviews ended up really fast and then this young man that ran a catering company He asked me again, do you have any experience? And I said, no. And he's now going to tell me go away. And he said, great, you're hired. I was like, wait, what? And he said, I love the fact that nobody ruined your brain. I'm going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: that's a really, really good point because everybody, you get a lot of staff that come in and you're always looking for people with experience, but it's always the person that is so hungry to learn that is always going to go farther. Right? Yeah. Experience—they're a sponge. They want it all, and they're not going to go. But at my other restaurant, they told me.
1: Yeah. And that was. Yeah. It's the thing with resumes, and don't get me wrong—I still look at them for maybe thirty seconds. But you know, the interview or twenty-four hour, forty-eight hours working with a person are the biggest testimony of their skill set, their willingness, their personality. And I always tell them, I was like, what if you are amazing in your last job and you're just going to suck at this one? And what if it's the other way around? So, you know, unless something dramatic happened and, you know, somebody will call us a bad reference, which you're not legally even allowed to do anymore.
0: Um, I don't even want I'm to just, talk about that. <laughs>
1: yeah. I'm just going to have you come in, you know, put an apron, spend a day or two or three and, and see how it works for the two of us. And that guy gave me my chance in life and said something pretty smart the day I left. And I left in great terms and we're still really good friends. He said, you'll always work for me. And it took me a lot of time to understand what he was saying. And I talk about him to this day, you know, so he was right. I still work for him. And that's 27, 28 years later. Um, And he was so smart and such a great mentor figure that three years after working for him, he said, I think this is all I can give you. And I think you should pursue this and and go and maybe get some formal studies to get some good basics and techniques that I just cannot offer you. I think this is the limit. And it takes a lot for somebody to say that and and send you your way. And I enrolled into a cooking school in France where I spent two years and uh, learned about basic techniques and sauces and, and things like that. Uh, stayed three years after school working in France. And that's kind of where the spice thing came about in my, one of my um, jobs in the North of France. I made a chef by the name of Olivier Olinger in Concal, Brittany, Yes, which uh, people who know, know. <laughs> and, Amazing,
0: or- a brilliant, brilliant man. So kind. Yeah. Um, I was enamored when I when I got to meet him um, yeah. a bunch of years a, ago, just so telling.
1: Very special person, very special place, Konkal, kind of on the cliffs in Brittany, mm-hmm. kind of rainy and gray. Seafood is unbelievably good. Um, and he introduced me to the world of spices in a way that I've never thought about it. I mean, growing up in Israel, you go to the markets and you get your baharat and shawarma and hawaiage and all of these crazy names. But I saw this French guy from Alsace living in Brittany cooking uh, seafood with different curries from uh, Mauritius and in, in South India and Penang and in trying galangal and curry leaves and I was like, this I, I got to learn about all these things. And so he was he was great about you know educating me and kind of giving me material to read and then you start learning about history and geography and botanical studies and understanding that the food is the last, it's just the execution. You've got to understand where it's coming from and what goes around it, which, you know, what we sadly now call farm to table. I say sad because nobody talks about the table. It, it's kind of end there. I mean, but um, I just went back and, and started learning and then moved to New York in 2002, joined Danielle Boulou. That's kind of the funny story about how That was a full circle and worked with him for about six years uh, in different positions. It it was a lot of hard work. I mean, you have this notion that things happen overnight. They don't. Now, I don't think that things should be in a bad environment. You could be strict and you could be demanding, but it takes time. Like any other profession, I don't think you met a doctor who in one year became a heart surgeon. No. (laughs) You definitely I don't
0: sign up for that surgery if you find out.
1: <laughs> I hope not. So when you, when now finally, even my mother thinks that cooking is cool and, and being a chef is an actual profession. And, and, you know, there's some positive aspects to the, the glamor that you see, but you just see the end result. You don't see the years of, of perfecting skills and experimenting and going through different things of, of becoming better at the craft that you do like any other craft. So um, I think it, it took a long time. And for me, it was this realization after by then it was probably a good 20 years of cooking that um, my passion was elsewhere and not being in a restaurant. I wanted to connect to the growers and the suppliers and the vendors and and highlighting this world of spices that Olivia got me all excited about. And being in a kitchen wouldn't allow me to do it. So I went to see Daniel, I gave him a year's notice, which I think is pretty fair. And- um, That's unheard and, of nowadays. <laughs> yeah, it's this uh, famous phrase that no no chef ever wants to hear. It's like, hey, do you have five minutes? I'm like, nope, I, nope, I really no, don't. No, I don't have the five minutes
0: because <laughs> nope. you know it's coming. <laughs> yeah. It's it's one or two things. You're giving notice, or somebody's asking for a raise.
1: <laughs> Correct. Which in both cases, it's it's not a good. I mean, um, but yeah. A year later, I actually um, did leave. I got a part time sort of job just so I can, you know, still pay bills and whatnot. And started this idea of la boite of of what spices are, and to this day, the notion that spices are an ingredient. And when I say to people, they're like, yeah, sure, they are. Like. No, they're not, people don't think of them that way. It's that last thing that you add. Nobody sits and look at a jar of a spice, like I'm gonna build a dish around this. Or when they say, what's my produce? What's my sauce? What's my, and what is my seasoning or my spice in the ingredients? It's usually kind of the last thought, if, if at all. And I'm here to say, sure, produce is important, protein is important, absolutely. But what flavor do you want to bring to them? And even the most perfect piece of vegetable could use a little bit of help you know to to highlight what it is or or protein
0: i think it's a very i mean there's there's a bunch of things that you've said that i think are super super important it's like when you were with olivier you were you were learning the history right and also he has a very unique history of how he got to cooking with spices and working with fish for folks out there you should do your research but he had a very very serious injury which created digestive issues, which he needed to learn to re-eat different ways. Um, and that's being the polite way of saying it. I w- would you agree with that?
1: yeah, I mean, he definitely had in his life story there's a couple of movies and books about there.
0: It's really worth seeing. but yeah. the 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 thing about that you said that I think is really important is understanding the history, understanding the craft, layering and building on those skill sets just like you do with food. you're layering flavors, right and and knowing where these spices come from affect the final product of what you're making, right? Every culture, let's just, let's just use a piece of meat. Let's say poultry, right? We'll use chicken. Every culture has a chicken, but their spicing that they use makes it and defines where they're from and who they are with how they prepare that piece of chicken. Right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah.
0: And I think so much information. I mean, I've learned so much. And it's always fun when I can call you and say, I got an idea. And Hmm. when I talked to you about, for instance, the Apicius spice, you knew exactly what I was talking about. You were the first person that I spoke to that knew what I meant. And that was a fun, and that's old for the people who don't know Apicius. That was the f- officially, I think they would consider that the first cookbook, the Book of Apicius. And it was a spice blend that was used for game meats, um, because they would hang game meats until they, pretty much their necks broke. They would spoil, almost be rancid, and it was a way to mask that intense aroma and flavor, but also accentuate and pull out some sweetness out of the game meats. And when we talked about it, God, five, six years ago, I said, I want to make a piece of spice. And you're like, where's your recipe? And I had gotten it translated from the book of Apiseos. And you and I went back and forth. That was one of the most fun hour-long conversations you I've know. had about spice. And, and, and it really, you showed me new things that my, the, the recipe that I had didn't have. And we just worked it out. It was the most fun I'd had.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I, I love these. I mean, I think that there's so many fun aspects to my day-to-day uh, and, and one of them being talking to chefs like yourself and other professionals. It's it's a conversation, you know, it's the same one that you are having with your farmer or your fish supplier or your meat, not about just what it costs. Sure, there's there's the business aspect of it, but You know, when they come and say, hey, we've got this great vegetable, we got this great fish, you already in your mind started envisioning where you're going to take it from there. They're going to be able to tell you that story that you throughout this dish are going to tell your client at the restaurant uh, that you're feeding, because as as much as we are cooks and chefs, we're in the business of storytelling, you know, And, and how do you, you know, people who are really good about it, and I always strive to be a bit better like them, is a sommelier or wine people. Their job is so difficult. They're trying to sell you something that you cannot smell or taste until you open that bottle. <laughs> and and they got to get you excited about why you should spend a lot of money on it. No, not a lot, of just money uh, on something. And, and the same with writing a menu, which I think is an art form. Some people are really amazing at writing. You know, menus at a restaurant where in I don't know, eight, ten words, you can get somebody excited about it. I gotta order this. This sounds delicious, or this this excites me. And the story of the ingredient and the spices uh, is fascinating. And the beauty of spices, and it's something that we also work very hard with the team here is the notion that it doesn't matter where you're from, where you live, what's your cooking style, spices are your your colors that you can bring to whatever it is that you're doing sure they come from another country but don't try to make somebody else's food you know bring them into your food and that's what I saw Olivier doing he wasn't cooking Indian food he wasn't cooking Indonesian food he was cooking his Brittany type cooking with these nuances of, of far away and travel uh, with with local ingredients we were not allowed to buy anything that didn't come from the farm around there or from the fish there was nothing that was shipped to the restaurant everything came but the spices were his way of of you know kind of taking it to the third dimension and i think people at home or in restaurant have this opportunity to travel without leaving the kitchen that's that's as easy as it it sounds you know you really can deliver emotion with that uh
0: yeah so I really want to understand how you started finding these amazing farmers. And they, they, I mean, for folks out there to understand, like people grow these spices, they are, you know, vanilla hangs on a tree. You know, it's like, it's in a pod. These things are grown and harvested. Some are wild, some are not, but it's truly understanding who's doing it well right? Who's drying it properly, how it's being sourced, how the staff are being treated that may be harvesting it. How do you find all these folks? Because the spices that you have are from all over the world. They're, I mean, it's just from as far as, the, as you can imagine.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So once I started La Boite in my, in my living room, and, and by the way, this upcoming December 16th is our 16th year, so it's kind of a wild thing to imagine that it's been 16 years of, of doing that. Um, it's like, okay, we, I need ingredients, I need spices. And I applied my 20 some years of, of being in a restaurant where as a chef or sous chef, I knew where I was ordering from. I, I knew what farm grew, what produce and what, you know, where the fishermen's were or, or, you know, and the dairy product, I knew. And I was like, can I apply the same? and not just say, I need a bag of peppercorns. So oh, I need a bag of peppercorns is the regionality. And all of a sudden you find like 20 different regions around the world that grow pepper. And then you start going deep and deep. The reality is that sometimes it's hard to get to the farmer, especially having traveled now uh, to India and, and realizing that um, a bag of 110-pound hundred uh, of cumin of 110 pound bag of cumin could come from at least two or three farmers that only grow a little bit come together as a little co-op and then sell it to the local trader who will take it to the market so in some cases it's more regional or terroir or where it's coming from and understanding that cumin from India does not taste like cumin from Turkey or Syria, which nowadays doesn't have it anymore, but for, for me who had the chance to taste it, I still miss uh, Syrian cumin. For most people, cumin is cumin, that's that's what it is. Uh, and when you start smelling these different nuances, not necessarily good or bad, it's, it's pretty wild and mind blowing. And, and sometimes, and those are very happy moments, you go to a farmer and you go to visit them and you find that they have goats and cows and chickens, a couple of rows of this, couple of rows of that, because they want to, don't want to bet all of their income on like one farm of something. Every season something else comes about and they sell it. They also don't need pesticides or any fertilizers because the chicken and goats and animals fertilize the land or eat the grass. So they have this really smart way of, of growing things and they don't think it's anything in special or particular. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I went to India, to the north, to Omnibad and I went to see a fennel grower and everything's harvested by hand. And I asked him how he knows the fennel is ready to harvest. And he showed me these little ribs. If you ever look in large with your iPhone or magnifying glass uh, fennel seeds, they have ribs on the outside of them. Nobody ever looked. So he goes and when he starts seeing the ribs on them, that's how he starts harvesting. And I said, what do you do with the pollen? But the fennel pollen? is like, uh, we throw it away. And I was like, Oh my God, why? And he was like, who would eat that? And I pulled my phone and I showed him on Amazon, the price of an ounce of fennel pollen. He went on a walk. It took him like an hour to come back to digest what he was throwing away. <laughs> well, that's funny. Cause,
0: and you know, this, you know, me, I go harvest wild fennel pollen here in, in Northern California on the regular. And we've talked about that. I think, you know, one of the things, and and this is actually, it just recently happened. We placed an order for coriander seed for Rosalie. And I told my staff, I said, wait till I get there. Wait till I get there to open it. I want to show you something. Because I know, I know what your coriander smells like. And it's, to me, it's the best. And I get there and I was like, okay, guys, we, we're gonna we're gonna make this dessert. And we were doing a, a coriander meringue. And I open it in front of the whole kitchen team. And I was like, all right. And they start sticking the container in everybody's face. I was like, I want you to smell this. And their eyes lit up. They were like, This isn't, this isn't coriander. And I was like, no, it is. This is grown from a different place from what you're used to it's (laughs) younger it's it's fresher it's yes it's dried but and and just the look of awe on their faces was so exciting because it's it just was a whole revelation for all of them what they had in their mind was darker brown over they had been probably been around for a long extended period of time you know but it didn't have that beautiful lemony nuance that mm. the coriander has, and and that your coriander has, and and I'll it just it was the best feeling ever to go. Okay, guys, see you think you know something, we realize we don't. Every yeah. day, learning opportunity.
1: Yeah, no, it's I. I'm all about being proven wrong, because I know I'm right already. So what's the point? What's the fun in that? Mm. Um, and and that farmer, after our whole fennel pollen thing, he was like, now I got something for you. I was like, okay. So he takes me to the field across and uh, he was like, what do you think of this? was so, like, that looks like nothing. It looks like a dry plant. It's, you know, maybe 12 inch high. He was like, go and pick one of those little seeds and, and eat it. And I picked picked it and ate it. And I was like, whoa, it was fresh cumin, which, Rarely can you even access unless you grow your own cumin, which I don't know many people who do. And and I was like, "Can how do I?" He was like, "You you can't because you know an hour or two after you harvest it, it just dry and it would never." This is something you eat off the plant, and and just keep the memory in your head. And um, so that was a fun day about me teaching him. I was learning about something. And these and these really uh, precious moments. Going back to Olivia, which is one of my favorite quotes of his, he was always come and say to the team. He was like, "Listen, all I need is an empty fridge and amazing memories." That was his motto. We come every day. We prepare from scratch. I want an empty fridge and incredible memories. That was it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so those are the type of farmers and, and they don't come that often, but I think understanding terroir regionality, the different types of, like you said, coriander, can you pick Moroccan versus Canadian versus Indian? Um, it's also tricky because the supply chain is is a bit challenging and you could have coriander that would say Indian, but it's actually from Eastern Europe. It's just been dried and packed in India. so. It's. I don't try to get too too much in it. I try to work with a great, uh, you know, with great sources and great vendors. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of paperwork involved these days, and a lot of safety procedures, which is which is great. We all want to deliver safe and healthy food. It's a little bit too much sometimes. It's unfortunate, and then I hope that's not going to drive small businesses from starting just because of the list of certificates and and regulation that you have to go through. But um, I still travel as much as I can, or or I just, you know, online or contact vendors and and even our importers are now very aware of who we are and what we like. And they've learned that the price is the last thing that they mention. It's first of all, how many uh, oils I called the other day to order Vietnamese cinnamon and our supplier for many years said, Mm -hmm. I don't have it. I was like, what do you mean? He was like, I have stuff, but it's only three and a half percent oil. I'm not going to send it to you because you buy 5% and up. So I got really upset on one hand because I didn't have the Vietnamese cinnamon for a few days. On the other hand, it was very nice to know that now my importer kind of knows what we like and what we do. The same way that I'm sure you have in your restaurant where vendors say, Chris, uh, we don't have the stuff that's good for you. Let's switch to something else today or for this week.
0: I mean, that's that's a great, great relationship you've built by setting the standards and and they want to make sure that you're getting what you want. you know yeah. because in turn, that just is what the guest is going to get. and the guest's expectations are high, and it just trickles down. So what is when you're now sourcing and you're looking, I mean, has there been something out of the blue, like you just mentioned, but, something that you've been surprised is growing somewhere you didn't expect with a flavor profile that just was totally opposite of what you may have expected it to be. Or um, that moment that I, there's always aha moments and you have so many spices, you've touched so many things. There's gotta be something that's just giving you the, the, the spins.
1: Yeah, I think one kind of interesting, funny story was asafoetida which um, the first time somebody sent me a sample, I opened and closed the jar and nearly threw it to the trash right away. It, it's like this fermented, really harsh garlic meets onion, slightly on the rotten side of things. I'm like, oh my God, this is, un- no, no human being should eat this. And I put it aside and a few, I don't know, a little long later months or whatever, I, I ate a spinach dish. And, and there was just something about it. And the person who made it, I asked him, what's so special? Because it was just spinach and a couple of things. And I was like, oh, I use asafoetida for it. And I was like, oh my God, this thing. And they said, yeah, it's it's it really comes to life in small amounts when you start cooking it on its own. Really bad idea, especially the, the kind of the really pure stuff. A lot of the times it's cut with either rice flour or wheat flour just because it's pricey also. So I think that was, to me, a, a great example of something that offhand, I would never in a lifetime use it. I've never seen it before, um, but I've learned to love it. And we now use it, and, and I use it. And I think it's uh, it, it's one of these things where I could still surprise people and say, wow, you know, ch- try check it out. You know, this, this is going to...
0: I'm excited because I don't know if you know that there's a actually... Um, an Etruscan dish that is similar to haggis, where they used asfatida, They stuffed it inside of a stomach and they used garum, which is a mm-hmm. big discussion, right? There's that big discussion. Is fish sauce Southeast Asian or is it pre-Etruscan? Who made it it's, first?
1: It's Persian.
0: So they oh my God. Now <laughs> we're going to have another debate, I'm going to fight <laughs> with another person. Good Lord. So you have this, it was a. It was actually. It's pretty incredible because I was doing research years ago when I was doing the head-to-tail dinners, and I wanted to find a new dish to do. And they would stuff a sheep stomach, and they would use asfeda, they would use fish sauce, um, but it was a pre-Etruscan like version of haggis. And I mm-hmm. messed around with that. I couldn't figure out how to do it. I tried so darn hard because <laughs> the re- <laughs> couldn't get the recipes translated. Because I was looking at old, old cookbooks and um, I was actually trying to have somebody translate the book for Theseus, you know, because they had a recipe for it in there. But it was so interesting. And that spice, like you said, is such a unique it, and it makes sense now that you think about it because of the flavor. Right. You have the the fish sauce, which is pungent. You have this and then you have all the 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 funky bits from the lamb, which at that time was the lungs and all the everything, yes. the full pluck. And it's so funny that you say that because I'd never seen it, never heard of it, and I had to find it. And I was
1: like, where am I going to get this stuff? Like, what? Is- <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> that was. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, there's these things. And then on the other hand, you know, a few years ago, uh, I'm, I'm guessing you had the chance to go to Avery Island to see the Tabasco production. Or if not, I have, not.
0: I have not, unfortunately.
1: Make sure you get invited somehow. It, and so I, I did the tour and then very impressive. And at the end of whatever's left in the sediments in the barrel after three years of fermentation, there's all this great chili and, and uh, salt and vinegar. And I was like, what happens to this? And it was like, funny, you should ask. We just started experimenting with um, dehydrating and spade drying it into powder. And so the, the person who hosted us there sent me a little box a few weeks later we still use it today. It is Tabasco powder, which, you know, is mind blowing that you could have this, like the same liquid in a bottle, but just in a powder form. And the technology of spray drying, which is very, I mean, it's not new. I mean, NASA has been using it for years and manufacturers. So it's kind of the old meets the new of technology meets ingredients, preserving them, whether it's freeze drying, spray drying them, uh, just air drying them. So. Um, a lot of these surprising moments as you travel and and discover different types of chilies and peppers and method of of working with them. Um, You know, even vanilla, the first time that, I mean, I've used vanilla my whole life, but until I started learning about pollinating vanilla, which to date is done by hand with a needle. Every orchid, the right time of day, the right time of year, somebody's got to go with a needle and poke that orchid flower; otherwise, there will be no vanilla bean. You can just imagine how many of these needs to be done. In a, so, a lot of great uh, things. And then fast forward to that, we now work with an Israeli, of course, company which um, sources green vanilla beans. But based on your liking, and my liking, we're now working on a, on a Labouat profile of vanilla. They can via AI and flavor profile cure it in lab control environment to have the specific profile that I want to get, which to me is mind-blowing again. I mean, so it never ends.
0: That's that's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. I think for for a lot of folks, I don't think they realize like what's like such a basic thing. What is mace, right? People don't realize that mace is the the webbing around nutmeg, right? People mm-hmm. don't, I don't think people recognize some of these things. I mean, they hear them because a lot of times people are buying them ground, pre-ground, right? Or people are um, not having the opportunity to see them in true form, like cardamom. How many varieties of cardamom was there, right? Mm-hmm. Like they see maybe just one variety. Um, you mentioned peppercorns. I remember being the first time I'd ever seen poivlong. long, mm-hmm. right? And that's- yeah. It, it's, it has tropical notes, smells like pineapple, right? Like, I don't think people recognized that there was another version. There's just yeah. so many options that just keeps going and going that you can just forever play. I mean, that's my favorite part.
1: Yeah, it is. And, you know, I don't think there's a lot of new things. There's a lot of new things to me that I have yet to discover yet. And, and you know, that once I decided that the word spices just meant something dry that I can season my food with, then all of a sudden, I mean, it's like uh, the possibilities are endless. It's berries and cheese and meat and fish and and anything that could be dried into either whole or powder form in our world at least is considered a spice. Uh, so, So we have yet to reach the end. You know, there's so much to discover and so much in the vegetal world and and things that um, I have learned from a good friend uh, about these uh, Syrian pine nuts that are like the size of like a a sesame seeds that are used in the porridge uh, all the time. And and I think the funny, fun thing now, not funny, but the fun thing is that now people start sending a bunch of random things that they find over the world. It's like, see if you can do something with it.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's, I think... You know, you, you you see and hear of things. Now we're seeing, you know, there's been the whole Douglas fir, right? Young Doug fir that people are drying. And I use that during the holiday. I dry and make a powder and put it on things because it's beautiful as a Christmas smell, right? Holiday mm-hmm. smells. Um, but I think there's so many ways to really accentuate food through spice. And um, I was always fortunate to work with Mark Miller who had a very, very firm thought process about chilies, right? And that's where I understood the basis, learned the basis of chilies. You know, I don't think people realize, you know, a Chipotle, there's many different varieties of Chipotle, how long it's been smoked. You know, what is a Chipotle when it's fresh? What is an Ancho chili when it's fresh? You know, people don't, Mm -hmm. there's a disconnection, I think, sometimes. Um, And I think it's the flavors develop they change um and give you whole new whole new life to something and like you said you know drying berries or cheese and that spice element has changed because it was a vegetable but now it's considered a spice right
1: well yeah they're all for the most part except for the dairy it's a produce it's just a dry produce and also from the day-to-day notion you know of You need, that's kind of my two cents about cooking. You need salinity, you need heat, you need acid, sweet and bitter. Now it's up to you to decide which element is going to deliver what. So the notion of season to taste with salt and pepper, I hope will disappear one day. And it just will be replaced with season and salinity and heat. And like you said, maybe a chili. I sometimes find myself for a few days in a row, not using one, gram of pepper in my food because i'll use chilies or i'll use ginger to compensate or i'll use wasabi or i'll use horseradish and salinity sure i love salt don't get me wrong but it could be salt in its crystal form it could be the brine from your olives or or pickles it could be seaweed it could be capers it could be celery seeds which contain tons of of sodium in them and the list goes on and on so i think that. it's about like this pure notion of how to season also, which a lot of people lack that technique. Um, You know, it's something that takes time between this eye and hand coordination of of how much to put and how much to season. And and season as you go, it's hard to get to the end result and start compensating for for lack of flavor, unless you're pouring a ton of hot sauce and then you can't taste anything anymore. Mark was
0: adamant when we were cooking that he would always say acid and herbs before salt, acid and herbs before salt, because whether it be an acid, an herb, which, you know, could be dried, could be fresh or spices, we're always going to accentuate the food where you would need less salt or maybe none at all other than a few little flake grams on the on the finish. But I think that 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 was a really eye-opening lesson for a very young cook when he told me that. It made me rethink because the normal thought process of a cook is get a grip of salt and just go because f- that's going to fix everything.
1: Yeah, and it's, yeah not- <laughs> and it's sadly something that's not being taught in professional environment, whether it's a restaurant or or culinary schools which which is a shame. I mean, you're bound to have great knife skills, but if you can't season your food properly, then what's the point, you know, and, and um, there, there's a lot to be done. I think we're in a much better place 16 years later when, you know, we can have a conversation about different spices from different places, different types of salt, different types of pepper, and, and even your local grocery store, the spice aisle is better. Is it great? Maybe not, but it's definitely better. Um, so I think we're in a much better place of, of a conversation about food to begin with um, and spices.
0: I always tell people to grind pepper fresh at home. I tell them not to buy pre-ground pepper.
1: Yeah, I mean, as long as what's in their grinder is good. Yes. Uh, okay. Then Yeah, so I think that's kind but of... I think- uh,
0: I always say, you know, unless it's a reputable producer that you know it's being ground in small batches specifically for you and it hasn't been on the shelf or, because I don't think, you know, when you're buying a lot of stuff, it, you don't know how long it's been there.
1: That's correct. And, you know, it's, uh, you have no way of knowing and I take a kind of a non-educated guess. Most of what you buy is at least a year to a year and a half already between, you know, when it was harvested to the time you touched it. And that's like the short, time it's usually way more than that so um you know it's it's better if you can grind your own but if you don't have the time or, or energy just make sure you buy good ground spices from a good and just buy what you need the same way that you don't buy 20 pounds of romaine to keep in your fridge um i hope uh, <laughs> make 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 spices part of your maybe monthly shopping lists to this notion of like, oh, I gotta replenish this and this and that, and not just look at a jar that you have no idea when you bought and, and what to do with it anymore. And and if you don't use it, don't don't keep it. There is no list of ten things that everybody should have in their kitchen. Just you know, check it out, taste, smell, see what you like, and just keep that in your kitchen and use it. That's well,
0: one of the things I love that you've <clears throat> that you've done. Not only can people look on the website learn about each one of the spices, you give them recommendations on what it works well with is the blends that you've made that really make it so easy for people at home to really accentuate their food with just just a little sprinkle, right? And it's not, you've taken the, I, I think for me, I think what's been the most exciting part of it is you've taken the fear away from the consumer by giving them the tools to really succeed with that spice. Blends or individual spice by giving them so much information. And I think that that's been really um, an eye opener. I mean, I learned a lot about individual spices i would never had access to or seen.
1: But the spice blends
0: are epic. I mean, I use them
1: always. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. No, no, for sure, thank you. I mean, it's hard to use a lot of single spices. it's if you need to grind them and then you need to blend them. And so I think making the blends made it very much more accessible for professionals and uh, home cooks. And there's nothing wrong with, with buying a blend of spices, you know, if, if it's done the right way. Uh, and I invite people at home too. If you have a great signature recipe that calls for three or four spices, make a batch of it. Just take 10 minutes, make yourself a blend, put it in a jar and say, this is my, signature chicken spice event. so when you need to cook your chicken 25 percent of the work is already done you don't need to start running around and focus on each step at the time you know I, i people always ask i'm sure you get asked that too you know what makes professional chefs different than home chefs and the answer is usually the prep and the organization you know it's it's half of the battle if you know what you need to buy you have everything where you need you know what's the game plan sure you there's a technique that you develop with time, but a lot of it is preparation precision. So blending the spices is important, measuring them the right way, not just like eyeballing them. Um, I'm a big fan of recipes. It took me a year. I think my little three, four years as a a pastry cook taught me a lot about discipline and precision and understanding why things work a certain way. Uh, I think you can ask any cook in a steakhouse that uses a broiler, their recipes in their head and they know exactly what's going on around there and you know how much time and how much heat so they'll tell you we don't use a recipe but they have a recipe it's just was never written down
0: (laughs) (laughs) there's hundreds of them so and and you know the the spice companion is also a great tool for um consumers to really understand more about how to use these. Not only do you give in-depth instruction, but also great recipes to use with them. I mean, I love the book, it's beautiful. Um, The imagery is stunning, but also just how to use spices in different ways for folks, which I think is really, really great.
1: Yeah, thank you, thank you. It was uh, was a fun project uh, to work on. It was really meant to help people or educate them in a fun way of where things are coming from, what great combination of spices, And and some traditional and some maybe more unexpected way uh, to add spices to your food, breakfast, lunch, dinner, beverage, sweet, savory. There's really no opportunity where you should not consider maybe adding spices from your morning coffee or tea to snacks to things like that. It really, really uh, gives it a better experience.
0: I love it. So you want to play a game? Sure. Okay. Coffee or tea? Coffee. With milk or without?
1: Without. Love that.
0: Uh, Red wine, white wine?
1: Uh, Oh, white.
0: (laughs) What's your favorite white?
1: Oh, that's hard. That is really hard. Region or actual producer?
0: Uh, Style uh roan nice nice dark beer light beer light hamburger hot dog hot dog ketchup mustard
1: mustard big time
0: whole grain dijon or deli
1: uh whole grain
0: I love that i'm liking your answers this you're, you're definitely there's been no wrong answers it's just interesting to see the total difference from everybody is there
1: an evaluation at the end oh my god no no,
0: no evaluation <laughs> it's just fun because i think it really tells a lot about people i think when you look at food you know and people's preferences like i love hot dogs i love them i mean come, come on this for years they're delicious right um i'm not a ketchup dude at all but whatever I go with with,
1: with mayo, but that wasn't an option.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Taco burrito? Taco. Nigiri, sashimi? Sashimi. Sea urchin, caviar? Caviar. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) now i'm like totally losing track um pasta or noodles
1: pasta i mean it's the same i mean yes yes pasta
0: same yet different right yeah yeah you know because okay sure yeah right like ravioli or dumplings okay sure which one of those
1: uh dumplings
0: it's so funny. I love ravioli. I love pasta, and I love ravioli, but dumplings is always a winner because there's diversity. There's so much diversity yeah. in them, right? It's it's like, okay, I got to ask, do you even eat an everything bagel with all the spices on it, or do you find the spice to be always burnt?
1: I don't eat bagels to begin with. I mean, not that I have not, and I have anything against bagels, but it. it my choice of bread would not be in a, would not be a bagel. <laughs> <laughs> it should be to me. It would be bagel or pita. That's that's an easy that's, answer.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a fair <laughs> that's a fair one. Um, uh, duck or chicken? Duck. Beef or pork?
1: Wow, that's tough. I'd say pork as a category.
0: Flat fish, round fish.
1: Flat. Are you a
0: fluke guy?
1: Uh yeah. Soul, fluke. Yeah.
0: It's always fun to see the difference. <laughs> Chocolate or fruit?
1: Chocolate. Bitter or sweet? Sweet. i'm from Be- i have a belgian passport <laughs> you know
0: <laughs> french fries onion rings
1: french fries
0: well you have to if you didn't say that and you have a belgian passport i mean they're going to revoke yeah. it
1: <laughs> french fries and mayonnaise that's kind of a, it's a given
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man you are, thank you
1: thank you this was incredible thanks a lot
0: It's so fun to be able to talk with someone about what they love and how they got there. And and you have so much to share. And I'm really, really excited to see what's coming next.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lots more to come.
0: So folks, you heard it. 16 years, December 16th, Lebois has been in business. If you need spices, if you want great holiday spices, gifts for family friends, go to his website, check it out. Get his book and a beautiful spice blends. Uh, it's, can you give them your
1: website, please? They are. Sure. Laboiteny.com. It's L-A-B-O-I-T-E-N-Y.com.
0: I'm telling you folks, I do not, I, I can't say it enough. The best spices in the game. I, I love them. I use them all the time. Um, I actually just used them in my recipe today. So. Thank you very much. Again, I appreciate your time. And uh, thank I you. Being with you soon.
1: Thanks enough. This is awesome.
0: Thank you.